This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 42, Stalker. We're about halfway through our series on the life of Jacob, favored cheat, and this is a good point to take a breather, just to pause and do something different for a week or two, and then get back into Jacob's story and see how it winds up. One of the reasons I call this podcast Wide Margins is so that I have the freedom to veer from the main things that I do, which is mostly exposition of Scripture, and talk about other subjects that are on my mind, do uh, conversations with others, commentary on contemporary events, and also talk about some books and movies that I love. Uh, Not too long ago, I talked about Brothers Karamazov and uh, Dostoevsky's story of the Grand Inquisitor. I really enjoyed doing that. I got some good feedback on it. Today, I want to talk about another Russian classic. This is not a book, but a movie. Uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's 1979 classic, Stalker. I guess you would call this a science fiction movie, or maybe a fantasy film, but it really defies all attempts to categorize this movie. Uh, You really don't know where to put it. And that's by design. Uh, Some point early in the 70s, Tarkovsky, who all of his films, if you've seen them, are a little bit strange, but he started writing in his diary about wanting to broach the topic of religion legally. If you wonder what he meant by that, maybe I can help you out by pointing out that Tarkovsky lived in the Soviet Union, and under communism, you had to be very careful in the way that you discussed religion. Religion and communism really don't mix. They don't go hand in hand. It was Karl Marx, the father of communism, who said that religion is the opiate of the people, of the masses. Uh, So true, pure communism says there is no God and religion is false and we we should be doing away with it. But Tarkovsky was a believer and as A man of faith, he wanted to express that in his art. He was very good at what he did, so he got a chance to do it. But he had to run all of his projects through government supervision. So, Stalker was born out of that atmosphere. And the background of the movie is as interesting as the movie itself. I won't be talking about that much, but you can look it up in the usual places on the internet. Uh, I'm told that he shot the, the whole movie and lost most of the footage in the first round. He fired the cinematographer that filmed that early footage, hired a new one. The locations where he filmed this were abandoned factories and toxic areas and places people really shouldn't be hanging out in. And a lot of people got sick who were working on the film crew, and many of the actors got sick. In fact, a lot of people say Tarkovsky himself died about seven years later of cancer that he got because of shooting this film. So in a way, you could say he gave his life for this film. And another really strange thing about it is it was filmed in 1979, and in 1986 you have the disaster of Chernobyl, where this nuclear plant um, becomes contaminated, and still today the area is abandoned and... It's a zone that 
is, you know, people are forbidden to settle in, to walk through. You have to be very careful around that because of the accident there. All of those things are tied into this film, but none of them, as interesting as they are, none of them are as interesting as the film itself. It's called Stalker, but the word stalker in connection with this film doesn't mean what you think that it means. When you think of the word stalker, you think of somebody who's following another person, a creep who is lurking in the dark or something like that. The Russian word stalker was really coined by these two brothers who wrote the novel upon which this film is based. The novel is called Roadside Picnic, and the brothers are the Strugatsky brothers, and they coined this term to refer to guides who were gifted with the ability to lead people into this place called the Zone. This was a forbidden place. The government had roped it off where people were not supposed to enter in. And the stalkers would illegally lead certain people into the zone for a price. Now, to set all of this up, I need to explain what the zone is. Because that's at the center. That's kind of the center of the movie. It's the setting of the movie. And there's a scene in which two of the characters are talking and the zone is explained. Uh, There are no names used here. It's either like stalker or professor or writer. And this is a scene in the movie where professor is explaining to writer what happened to form the zone. He says, about 20 years ago, they say a meteorite fell here. It raised the settlement. They searched for it, but they found nothing, of course. Then people began to vanish. Finally, it was decided that this meteorite was not quite a meteorite. So, for a start, they put up barbed wire to stop the inquisitive taking risks. Then rumors began that somewhere in the zone there's a place where desires come true. Naturally, they started to guard the zone like a treasure, for who knows what desires a person might have. Now, the writer, he's curious. I mean, he's in the zone with the professor as they're talking about this. And he says, what if it wasn't a meteorite? What do you think it was? And professor says, I don't have any idea. It could have been anything. A message to mankind, as a colleague of mine says, or a gift. Writer says, some gift? Why would they want to do that? And that's when Stalker comes up behind them and says, to make us happy. I think this scene not only explains the setting, but it also gives you a clue into the mindset of these three main characters, Stalker, Professor, and Writer. Stalker, of course, leads these men in, and he is in this to help other people. He looks for people who are unhappy thinking that if they'll come to the zone and find this mysterious room and have their innermost desires come true, they will be fulfilled and be happy. He's altruistic. He's a bit of a holy fool, as they call him. And he's making a lot of sacrifices to do this. What he's doing is illegal, leading people into the zone. He's just done a five-year prison sentence for doing this, and his wife, before... He meets up with Professor and Ryder. His wife begs him not to do this again. She's afraid they'll put him away for 10 years this time. 
they have a child, and uh, they call the child Monkey for reasons um, nobody ever explains. But the child is disabled, and the rumor is that these stalkers who are gifted with the ability to navigate the zone, their children have these birth defects, and they're, they have these strange, mysterious things about them. He has this family, but he's so devoted to leading certain people into the zone that he risks being separated from his family and leaving them behind and going to prison. And so he has led professor and writer, these two people, apparently unhappy people, into the zone. Now, he does this in an indirect manner. The, the, the zone is not a huge area. It's pretty small, relatively small, and the room, at one point they come to the room that they're headed for, and they can see it. In fact, uh, Ryder, I think, says, you can put your arms around it. We're so close to it that you can put your arms around it. And Stalker replies, you can't approach it directly. You have to approach it indirectly. So he talks about traps and all these things that you have to be careful about, and he has a strange way of navigating through by tossing these metal nuts that he's tied strips of white cloth to, to to make sure there are no traps ahead of them. And he's constantly going and, t- and throwing these metal nuts off and following the path where it's safe to go. Ryder is the skeptic. He doesn't really seem to believe in the zone or the room or even know a whole lot about it, but he's gotten to a point in his career... He seems to have been a fairly successful writer, but he's gotten to a point in his career where the inspiration is dried up. And so he is going on this for material. He's trying to get inspiration. He's he wants to write again. He's he's all washed up and he doesn't want to end his career just yet. The professor seems to be in it for a Nobel Prize. He's studying this. And he seems to believe in it because the writer is the skeptic and he's disobeying stalker and going his own way and the professor he follows close alongside stalker the whole time and for the most part follows instructions there's a really great scene that may indicate what the zone stands for near the beginning of the movie it uh, involves them riding this train car on some tracks that lead into the zone And again, they're doing this illegally, so there's, you know, a little bit of excitement before they get on the train car. People are trying to shoot them, but the military doesn't follow them into the zone. They finally start going into the zone, and as they do, there's this really long scene where all you can hear are the sounds of the railroad car on the tracks. And it kind of puts you into a trance as as the camera pans from one character to another, very close up on their faces and at some point the screen that has been sepia toned for the first 40 minutes of the movie we get into the zone and everything turns to full color and you're in this lush green environment and it demonstrates the passage from the rest of the world into the zone and that trance-like hypnotic sound and the length of time and the slowness of the movie 
seems to indicate a descent into the soul of man or into the psyche of man or something like that. So that what we are about to see these men go through in the zone is akin to some kind of experience in the soul. It seems that he's making a comment about what is inside of us, what is really deep down. Now, I need to tell you something else related to the background of this story, just to, to kind of set it up. In the background of this story is a tragedy involving the person who taught Stalker how to do what he does. His teacher, he was known as teacher then, but he also had this nickname, Porcupine. And again, nobody knows why he was called Porcupine. It was just another one of those goofy nicknames. He was Stalker's teacher, and apparently Porcupine lost his brother in the zone, and he was grief-stricken over this. So the solution that he had was, although Stalkers are not permitted to go into this room that grants you your innermost desire, he went to the room for himself to plead for his brother. And after that experience, he returned home, and instead of getting his brother back, he became extremely rich. A week later, he hanged himself and died. It just shows you how high the stakes are whenever you get your innermost desire. Now, this is a major theme of this film and one that is very valuable because of the way it makes you think about what you really desire in your life. The room reveals your essence. And the idea of this whole thing is that what you want is who you are. You see, it's not the desire that you consciously contrive that the room grants you. It's your unconscious desire, the one you may not even know you have. It grants you your absolute, heartfelt, greatest desire. In other words, you may be Porcupine who wants to be the person who makes sacrifices to bring his brother back from the dead. But in actuality, you're just a greedy person who only wants money and material wealth. That's the danger. If, if you start digging down and asking yourself in truth, sincerely, what is my greatest desire? You might be scared what you find because your desires define who you are. What you want is who you are. What makes this movie so great is the character development. These are really interesting characters, even though they don't really have very interesting names or backstories you see them in the in the moment and they're very unhappy which is why stalker picked them in the first place he only leads people in there that he feels are worthy because of their their agony they've they've paid for this opportunity by suffering the way that they did and so i want to introduce these characters to you a little bit more starting with the writer the writer as i said is the skeptic he's worldly he's been successful as a writer and he's a very angry person. There's a scene where the writer gets frustrated and he just starts venting. And he reveals a lot about what it feels 
like to be burned out, unappreciated, hollow, doubting what you've been doing with all your life. It's this soliloquy where it starts out and he seems to be talking to stalker and uh, professor, but after a moment you realize that he's looking directly into the camera talking to the person watching the movie. It's really, it's really unsettling. Here's what he says. You put your heart and soul into your work and they devour you. They even devour the filth in your soul. They all have voracious appetites. They all keep crowding round, journalists, editors, critics, a constant stream of women, all of them clamoring for more. What kind of writer am I if I detest writing? If it's torture for me, a painful, shameful occupation. I used to think my books helped some people to become better, but nobody needs me. If I die in a couple of days, they'll find someone else to devour. I wanted to change them, but they've changed me to fit their own image. Once the future was only a continuation of the present. All its changes loomed somewhere beyond the horizon, but now the future is a part of the present. Are they prepared for this? They don't want to know anything. All they do is gobble. I don't know about you, but that kind of resonated with me because if you are in a position of influence, if you are a teacher or an influencer, a minister, a writer, a speaker, a parent, just any anybody in an influence, influential position, you'll come to a point where you feel like nobody's listening and what you do doesn't matter and after you're gone everything will be forgotten and and it's self-pity and and it's really not good to go to this place but he's speaking from a place of truth here because as a human being all of us really throw ourselves a pity party like this and so I thought that was a really really good part of the film and really spoke to a true human emotion that a lot of people feel the professor is also an interesting character. He's different from the writer, although like the writer, he's worldly and fairly skeptical. He does stick close to Stalker, and he seems overly worried about his knapsack he's been carrying around. He says he's got sandwiches and coffee in it, and at one point he leaves it behind, and they're in dangerous territory. They could die in any number of traps and difficult passes and, and paths that they're going through, but he wants to go back and get his knapsack after he realizes he left it behind. And against Stalker's wishes, he goes and gets it. So he's protecting this and keeping it with him. And he says in a few places that all his life he's been scared, he's suffered as the writer has suffered, but in different ways. At one point, you learned that his wife had been unfaithful to him, and he worries what will become of mankind when news travels far and wide about this room. He makes a couple of reference to that, and, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, throughout the journey to the room, in the zone, 
as they're zigzagging around, not quite going straight in, but taking an indirect approach, they experience a number of undeniable proofs of a spiritual reality. And the movie is very clever about just subtly bringing these into your experience, but then leading you away from them with the skepticism of the professor and the writer. Uh, a few examples. One is the zone itself. It's a strange, eerie place. You don't see any wildlife or people outside of the, the three travelers, stalker, professor, and writer. But you hear these sounds, <clears throat> and there's this really interesting scene where the camera takes the point of view of the professor. I don't know if I can describe this, but you seem to be following the professor in, and it rests through this old, rusty car, and you're looking through the car, thinking you're looking with the eyes of the professor, when suddenly stalker, writer, and professor come into view, and you realize that you're looking at them as the zone. And there's this, this subtle hint that the zone is sentient, that it's alive somehow as Professor turns around suddenly, abruptly, and looks straight at the camera as if he notices something, but then he turns away. And the writer does the same thing. And again, they don't say anything about it. It's just this subtle hint, something strange is going on. Things are always changing in the zone, Stalker warns them, so they have to stay close to him. One time, the writer, he decides to go off on his own. He's tired of this indirect approach, and Stalker is not making any sense to him, so he goes off on his own, cutting a straight trail to the room, and he hears this voice, stop, turn back. And he thinks the others are talking to them, and they insist that they didn't say anything. So you have these voices that are speaking as well. And there's another scene in this really strange environment. Uh, it's, like, it's like sand dunes inside a building where a bird is flying off and he just vanishes into thin air. That's, that's another thing that, you know, doesn't happen in the real world. When they get to this abandoned building where the room is located, Another really strange thing, almost comical, happens. A telephone starts ringing. So there, there are all these just inexplicable little things here and there that are just subtly introduced, and then the film helps you to forget them, which is a lot like life. You know, there, there are things, answered prayers and providential things that, that God puts in our lives and helps us with, that we are so quick to forget, and for some reason we are more prone to turn to skepticism than faith. That's just the way we are. It's a great struggle to keep faith and to keep believing, and this film brings that out really well. They eventually come to the room, and as they come to the room, Stalker is still thinking these guys are genuine, and they really wanted to go to the room for the purpose of getting their greatest desires. And so he tells them, this is the most important point in your life, and all you must do is just simply believe. But he's dismayed when the writer says he's not going in. 
And Stalker just looks shocked. But the writer says, I'm not going to go through all this silly business of sniveling and praying and humiliating myself before this room. I don't need this. And he starts talking about how he doesn't believe in the room. The professor also disappoints Stalker and shocks him in an even greater way because he produces from this knapsack he had been protecting a bomb. A bomb that he and some colleagues had developed with the intention of destroying the room. You see, the fear among the scientific community evidently is that if this room gets into the wrong hands, somebody with evil desires and plans to take over the world, there will never be any rest. And so they were toying with the idea of destroying the room when, as a group, he and his colleagues voted not to destroy it, and they hid the bomb, but Professor changed his mind, stole the bomb away, and has smuggled it all the way to the point of the room, and now he's assembling the bomb together, intending on destroying it. Who knows, maybe destroying Stalker, Ryder, and Professor along with it. This, of course, really upsets the Stalker, who just wanted to help people, and the room is his only purpose for living, and he begins to cry and to fight, and the other two are fighting him off, and there's a struggle here in front of this room that amazingly is supposed to grant you your greatest desire. Stalker finally tires and gives up. The professor's still holding the bomb, ready to destroy the room. And the writer, he looks at the professor and he says, Who told you about the room? How did you learn about this? And he just kind of nods at the stalker. In other words, he just heard about it. So the writer asks the stalker, he says, Who told you about the room? And he indicated that his teacher, Porcupine, this guy who committed suicide, he had told him about the room. And at that, Ryder concludes that this whole thing is made up, it's false, it's not real, and just kind of laughs and mocks the whole idea. And the professor seems also to give up his faith in the room as well, because he changes his mind about it, destroying it, which is good, and starts dismantling the bomb. But if he really believed in this room, he would have gone through with blowing it up because of his fears about it getting into the wrong hands. So now the only person who believes is the stalker. The next thing you see is they're back from the room in this bar or something on the roadside, and the stalker's wife shows up to pick him up, take him home. And it's as if they haven't been anywhere. I mean, this is how the movie begins. And they're back in the same place now. And there's no evidence, really, that they've had any experiences at all, except this dog has showed up. And the wife asks about the dog and who's going to take care of the dog. Typical wife comment. And... Stalker says, well, he started following us. He was in the zone, and he followed us out of the zone. And so the dog is kind of there to show that they really did go somewhere and have this experience. So she and their daughter take Stalker home. He's exhausted. 
He's extremely upset. Nobody believes. She insists that she believes in him and she's been with him. And there's some things about families and what they go through when a family member or several family members are people of faith and totally devoted to God. It it can be hard on a family. There's a lot of sacrifices to be made. And Stalker is just despondent over what the writer and professor have done, and he just sees them as stand-ins for the whole world. There are no true believers left. And as he is anguished, and as the wife turns to the camera and expresses her grief over the whole thing, the camera goes to the forgotten daughter. Now, you remember, the daughters, the children of stalkers, there's always something wrong with them. They're disabled. There's something strange about them. But we really haven't seen much about this daughter of theirs. She's in the kitchen, and she lays her head on the table. And as she does, the jars on the table start to move through telekinesis or something mysterious like that. There's no natural explanation for it. It's like some of the other hints that we've had, but it's not quite as subtle. There's just no no questioning it, that something very unusual, something spiritual and real is happening in this moment. And just as the film is about to end, you hear at the very end, Ode to Joy, and you know that there's some religious significance to what you are seeing, and that's how the film closes. I think it's so true to the human experience We're skeptical in the face of undeniable evidence to the contrary. We see prayers answered and we soon forget. God provides us with blessings we don't deserve and we forget them pretty quickly. We know there must be something beyond this world. There's no other explanation for why we are here than that there is more beyond this world. But it doesn't take us long to forget. Still, the evidence is there. And it calls us to belief. And so I want to leave you with three themes that have stuck with me from watching this film. And first one is that idea of the room. What you want is who you are. Your desires define you. And it can be a scary thing to look into your heart and to to see what you truly desire. However, the good news is you can slowly and gradually change your desires. And it's important that you do so if your desires are not in the right place. Top of the list should be God. Uh, Another way of putting this really is you are who you worship. And there are numerous verses in the Bible that talk about that. And that's why God was so staunchly opposed to idolatry in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Idols were forbidden because people became like what they worship, which is the same thing as saying you are what you desire. So that's the first theme. The second one is that there is a loneliness that will go along with faith. And the stalker is really experiencing this at the end of the film. He's just despondent over how he can't find any more true believers. And if you're a person of faith, you're going to have to stand alone a lot of times in your life. It's always been that way. And then finally, I think another great theme here is the human capacity to ignore clear signals from God. Answered prayer, 
the providence of God, the, the existence of the world itself. All of this is screaming at us to pay attention to the spiritual realities above us. It reminds me of some of the engravings of William Blake for the book of Job. You can look them up online, and you can see in these engravings, Job and his family and his friends in misery and in darkness. And then there's this clear line, and above the line is the spiritual reality they cannot see of angels and God all watching and wondering, what's Job going to do next? And that's the way the world is. We don't see it, but there is this line, this membrane between physical and spiritual, behind which there is there are beings and realities that are closer to reality than this physical world. And God's Word is telling us all about it. And still we lean more towards the skepticism than the truth. I don't know if you have the patience to make it through this film. I should say it's over two and a half hours. It's in Russian. You have to read subtitles. It moves really slowly by today's standards and by the standards in the 1970s. But maybe I've at least given you a taste of what it's like. It's one of my favorite movies because it says so much about faith and man and about God. And I'm glad Tarkovsky made it. And uh, it's worth watching if you ever get a chance. Thank you for allowing me to take a little break here from Jacob. We'll get back to it. Stay with us on Wide Margins.